Let me begin by uh, sharing a little bit of a historic fact about the monastic movement. You know what I mean by monastic movement, where the monasteries are, where the monks and the nuns go to? Many people think that this has began with the first century of Christianity. It's not. It's actually started in the 300s. And believe it or not, it started in Egypt, not in Rome. <laughs> and it started by a very wealthy man, Antony, or Antonio as was referred to, who gave all his wealth away literally, to the poor. He sold everything, gave it to the poor, and decided that in order to pursue godliness or holiness, he's going to go out in the desert, and he's going to be alone with God. After 12 years out in the desert, the Word got out, and his fame was spread, and people flocked to him for wise counsel, for advice, for spiritual guidance and wisdom, which defeated the purpose for which he wanted to be away in the desert alone with God. And so, after 13 years in the desert, he wanted to get away from people, so he went to a, an abandoned tomb. Well, a few years later, they found him. They kept searching for him. They found him in the abandoned tomb. So he decided to go and live in a, an old Roman fortress, and in fact, still there to this day, but they found him there too. <laughs> So after 20 years of this, he finally built a monastery. The monastery of St. Andrew is still there in, in Egypt, in an oasis in the desert, in the 300s. No matter where he went, people followed him. I'm going to tell you more about him at the end of the message. He couldn't get away from people. He couldn't get away from crowds. And I thought, what an incredible object lesson to every one of us who are in pursuit of godliness, that we cannot pursue godliness away from people. We cannot live out our faith in isolation. We cannot pursue godliness if we are not in a godless world. We cannot grow into Christ-likeness in a vacuum. Godliness cannot really bear fruit, and that fruit become clear and obvious if we're not rubbing shoulders with people. Years ago, I began to learn to thank God for those who are sandpapers in our lives. You know what I'm talking about? And not everyone, but there are some people gifted to be a sandpaper. And those sandpapers are really God's blessing to us because what they do as they sandpaper us, they polish us, they purify us, they, they really shape us into the image of Christ. Today, as we continue the study in Paul's epistle to Titus, we look at the first half of chapter 2. There you're going to learn that God wants us to pursue godliness in relationships. Relationships both with the believers and with the non-believers outside of the church. Relationships with those who are near and those who are far. And that is why the first ten verses of chapter 2 of Titus, Paul covers the whole waterfront. I mean, he leaves no one out. Old men, old women, young men, young women, employers, employees, leaves no one out. So, turn to Titus chapter 2, 
verses 1 to 10. In verse 1, the very first thing Paul is saying to Titus is this, that healthy doctrine produces healthy spiritual living, that sound biblical teaching produces sound practices, that teaching the truth of God and of His Word will produce Christians who are in pursuit of godliness. That's really the bottom line here. And then in verses 2 to 10, Paul gives Titus a number of injunctions. Please listen carefully. Perhaps there is no time that we find these injunctions to be more unpopular than our time. I want to repeat this. Perhaps there is no time when we find these injunctions by the word in, in the Word of God to be more unpopular than in our time. Let's look at them together. First, he speaks to the old men. He said they are to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, love, and endurance. In an age in which so many old men want to look young and hip, these are sobering words. In fact, when I hear some of my friends would say, <laughs> oh, to be 20 again, I said, give me a break. I don't want to be in my 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s again. <laughs> I enjoyed every one of those ages, and I'm glad I'm where I am, and I'm, I'm looking forward to the future, not worried about being, want to be young again, because those of us who have walked with the Lord long time should rejoice in that privilege. The person that Paul has in mind is the kind of person who has God's perspective, uh, the person who does not panic, the person who does not overreact, the person who doesn't go into extremes. Even when he is under stress, even when he is under pressure, he is stable and he's dependable. Why? Because he had been feeding for all these years upon the, the Word of God and the power of the Word of God and the wealth of the Word of God, because he has been drinking deeply from the springs and the wealth of God's grace. He rejoices in his obedience to the Word of God. Not say, oh, that I would be young again. At the age of 83, having traveled 250,000 miles on horseback, <laughs> not on airplanes, on horseback, preached 40,000 sermons, wrote 200 books and booklets. At the age of 83, John Wesley regretted that he has been unable to read and write more than 15 hours a day without his eyes getting tired. At his 86th birthday, he made a big confession of a big sin that he now increasingly developing this tendency to sleep in till 5.30 in the morning. <laughs> Beloved, godly older saints bring stability and wisdom that should be cherished. I know some of the younger generations devalue age and wisdom, but not in this church, thank God. I have seen here the younger generation longingly reaching out to the older generation who want to be mentored, that want to learn from the older generation in this place. I was thinking about how the young sometimes say the most interesting things 
I thought of this little girl who sat on her grandfather's knee, and she looked intently into his face. And she said, Grandpa, were you in the ark with Noah? (laughs) Well, the astonished grandfather said, no, no, dear, I, I was not. And she thought for a minute and she said, then why weren't you drowned? <laughs> they, they say the most marvelous things, don't they? Uh, <laughs> what the younger generation need to see is this. They want to see the soundness of faith, love, and perseverance. They want to see what it looks like. They want to see how it works in practice. And many of you have heard me say this, and I don't like to dwell on it, but every now and again I can't escape it. My grandfather, who has been my greatest inspiration and role model of faith, love, and perseverance, he always lived in the presence of God. He lost two unmarried sons to World War II. Then he lost his eldest daughter at early 50s. And yet, never cease from praising the Lord and living daily, longing for the day that he will be with the Lord in heaven. And while he every day literally went up on the roof and, and, and he said, wondered if the rapture is going to be today, yet he served the needy and the poor every day of his life until he died at 92. Hear me right, please. One of the saddest things is a man who was on fire for God in his youth, but then his love for the Lord has grown cold when he got older. It's the saddest thing for me. Because in the pursuit of godliness, it should be the other way around. That we grow as we grow in years, we grow in love for God, we grow in love for others. And that growth in love manifests itself by growing in patience and growing in generosity and growing in forgiveness and growing in eagerness to share the good news of the gospel. Verse 3. Same goes for older women. Now, ladies, I'm going to leave it up to you if you decide to be in that category or not. I am not going to set an arbitrary age here. In fact, I'm told that there are seven stages in a woman's growth. He said, baby, girl, young miss, young woman, young woman, young woman, young woman. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. I think we know that just as men can be inclined to physical abuse, women can be inclined to verbal abuse. Both are destructive They really are. They have no room among those who are pursuing godliness. And what the Apostle Paul means here by malicious gossip, listen carefully, repeating of information that is not certain. That's what he meant here. You say, why is that so bad? Listen carefully. Because it ruins reputations. It maligns character. It causes untold pain and suffering. It even destroys lives. And James said the tongue is like a spark that can literally burn a forest. And that is why you must be very careful in giving or receiving information. I always tell folks, I said, what's wrong with Matthew 18? I know 
in practicing Matthew 18, sometimes you incur some misunderstandings. But that's worth it. It is worth it because you are obedient to the Word of God. Don't go and talk about your brother. Go and talk to your brother. And if you have ever been a victim of gossip or false innuendos, you understand the pain associated with it. In fact, as I said, the person who receives the gossip is just as guilty as the person who spreads the gossip. And then Paul said that godliness is incompatible with drunkenness. Why? Because you cannot be under the control of the Holy Spirit when you are under the control of a chemical substance of any kind. But rather, he said, older women should teach younger women to do what is good. And I'm grateful to the Lord for the older women in this church. I know some women in this church who give so much of themselves. It is so humbling. In fact, my wife and I talk about that. I'm not saying this because just of something a pastor said. No, trust me. These godly women in this church who uh, freely give of themselves are really humbling to watch and see. Verses 4 and 5. What then are these older, wiser women to do with that wisdom? They are to pass it on to the younger women. Tell them to love their husbands, children, be self-controlled, pure, and to be kind and uplifting to their husbands. Why? Here is Paul's passion. He really is. This is the very heart and the core of everything he's saying. The whole reason for pursuing godliness. Verse 5, lest the word of God be maligned. That's really his passion here. Disrepute upon the Word of God. Then Paul goes on to speak to younger women and younger men, too. Verses 5 to 8. I really think this is the time for me to explain the statement I made earlier, and I said perhaps there is no more time when these biblical injunctions are unpopular than this day. In fact, they're not only unpopular, they are rejected altogether by many in the church. Please hear me right. The worldly influence on young Christians is undeniable. The worldly attack on the Christian foundation of marriage is relentless. The war on biblical marriage is hotter than the blazers. The viciousness by which our culture attacks God's designed roles for husbands and wives is constant. It's everywhere you turn. So what some churches and church leaders have done? They decided that these scriptural passages, these biblical injunctions, that speak of husband and wife's roles, different role, of a husband-servant leadership and a wife's biblical submission, a loving submission, a first-century stuff, and that they are irrelevant for our culture, that they are non-binding today. This God-ordained institution of marriage and family as the primary foundation for a healthy society, they are archaic and unnecessary. Here are some biblical truths before I get to the Scripture. 
neither chauvinism nor feminism are biblical. These are satanic inventions to destroy God's plan for marriage. They are intended to produce division in society between men and women. But these satanic attacks on this God-ordained principle are not new to our society. Did you know that? They're not a 20th century invention, and that is why Satan began doing what he's doing now in the Garden of Eden. (laughs) From that time on, Satan has been trying to destroy God's plan for marriage for mankind. Listen to me. The two distinct roles of godly, servant, spiritual headship on the part of the husband and a biblical submission on the part of the wife are ordained in creation. They're not made up by the Apostle Paul, as some liberals are saying. They're planned by God in creation. And what God ordained this formula of marriage, it's a very delicately balanced formula. Very delicately balanced. What is it? For the husband to exercise a loving, selfless, caring, servant leadership. And for the wife to uphold and honor and uplift him. As I said, it is like a a delicately balanced chemical formula. You see, if you mess around with one compound of that chemical formula, the whole thing goes out of whack. When there is unfaithfulness, abuse, and selfishness on the part of the husband, the formula goes out of whack. When the husband does not place his wife's needs ahead of his own, that chemical balance goes out of whack. When the wife is trying to compete with her husband, beating him down and stripping him of his dignity, the formula goes out of whack. You see, with the fall in the Garden of Eden came the distortion of men and women's proper roles as God intended them. There at the Garden of Eden is where the battle of the sexes began. Not a modern-day thing. It began in the Garden because only one person behind all this, and that's Satan. The disastrous consequences of that rejection of God's ordained role for men and women in marriage persisted all the way to the New Testament. And when you come to the New Testament, when God the Son left the glories of heaven and came to earth, born of a virgin, lived as the poorest of the poor, hung on that cross and died, rose again, the New Testament is basically saying, men, 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 you see how Christ loved His people, and He loved them so much that He gave up everything, including life itself on the cross. Now, you do that to your wives and for your wives. On the New Testament, it says to wives, You see how the church of Jesus Christ, the elect of God, the believers, so joyfully, willingly, thoughtfully, and thankfully submit to Christ in worship and in adoration, in thanksgiving, you do that to your husband. Let me just say in passing, the secular 
media loves to take these injunctions out of their context, out of this gingerly balanced chemical formula, and they twist them in order to make the Christian faith look terrible. They say, ah, see? The Bible teaches that women are subservient to men. Read my lips. No, and a million no. Never anywhere in the Scripture says women are to be subservient or men are superior in any way. The Bible is very clear. We are equal of value to God, and we ought to be of equal value to one another. You see, both Adam and Eve were created in God's own image. And pray, tell me, how can God want one person of His creation who created in His own image to be superior to the other? That is not an issue of value of creation. Men and women stand at a level footing under the cross. But they are to fulfill different roles. They are to complement one another. No one's superior, no one inferior. Ah, but the media love to distort the truth of the Scripture. They love it. And here in Titus, Paul is speaking to the older men and the older women saying, model God's ideal to the younger husbands and wives. Then he says to the younger men and women, follow God's formula regardless of who does and who doesn't. Why should a husband exercise selfless, self-giving, servant leadership? Why should a wife be uplifting to her husband, her loving husband, her caring husband? Verse 5 again, so that no one will malign the Word of God. Do you know what's going on here? I am convinced what the world is desperate to see is for this formula to work as God intended it to be. Because the world will truly see a fulfilled, happy, joyous Christian family in the pursuit of godliness. We cannot think of ourselves. We have to think of the one whom we represent. It is not our reputation, but the reputation of God whom we worship. When I was thinking about this, my mind hearkened to something happened about a million years ago when we moved to the United States. Feels like it now. And everything is new. And I have never seen American football before. What an education. Then I was honored by a friend who invited me to come and see a college football game. I was still trying to figure it all out. He knew a little bit of rugby, and he knew that we lived in Australia, so he was trying to associate it with rugby and said, well, you do this instead of this, you do this. And it was great. It was wonderful. He was amiable. He was generous. He was gracious to me. That was before the game started. (laughs) I kid you not. As soon as the game started, all of a sudden, he became a different person. Now, I'm sensitive. (laughs) So the first thing I asked him, did I say anything wrong? Did I offend you in any way? He said, no, 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 no. I just hope that they got their game face on. Now, I could have said, ah, yeah, huh, game face. But I didn't because I didn't know what game face is. (laughs) 
And I'm always a curious guy. I mean, I want, I want to learn. I said, what's a game face? He said, I am hoping that they are going not to disgrace the school uniform they're wearing and, and that they're going to get serious about winning today. Then I understood. Then I understood. And I think that's what the Apostle Paul is saying to the believers who are pursuing godliness in a godless world. Get your game face on. Play to win. Play not as to disgrace your name, Christian. As Christians, we're to wear the uniform of the kingdom of God, and we are in battle with Satan. But we have been given all of the weapons needed for to win. We have been given all we need to live with integrity and to speak the truth in love so that we may not bring God's Word into disrepute. Finally, in verses 9 to 10, Paul speaks to the employer-employee relationship. Don't let that thing about slave-master throw you off, because this is not the kind of slavery that we are familiar with in more recent history. This was an employer-employee relationship, because in Rome at that time, there were 20 million slaves, or what they refer to as slaves, 20 million. They were professionals of all kinds. They were doctors, they were engineers, they were teachers, they were professionals of all types. The best thing I can think about is be like our, our guest worker program. That's more like it. But this is about workplace conduct on the part of the Christian. And Paul gives us, he lists five ways in which we can exhibit godliness in the workplace. First, he said, work diligently and obey the rules. Secondly, work enthusiastically to please the boss. Thirdly, work quietly to be respectful of your superior. Fourthly, he said, work faithfully and give more than what you take in. Finally, he said, work as to prove your trustworthiness. Let me tell you, you behave like this at work, and you have an open sesame for witnessing for Jesus Christ. This is the greatest open door for witnessing. Unfortunately, many Christians by their lives neutralize the very words they speak. Let me conclude by going back to St. Anthony. He realized that he could not pursue godliness by shutting people out of his life. Whether it be in the desert, monastery, he couldn't do it. So he ultimately discovered and then finally said, listen to what my translation of it. He says, we live and die with our neighbors. If I sin against our brother, we have sinned against Christ. If we gain our brother, we please God. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.